HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. That's a little mellow for us, don't you think? Yeah, it is, huh? It's like a little mellow. It's like, how am I supposed to go from that to, hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday from 12 to 1245 at Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn on the Heritage Radio Network, joined as usual with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez in the studio and Jack and Joe in the engineering booth. How are you guys doing? You know, I think the, the mellow theme actually got you more amped up. Well, it had to be. Yeah, that worked out well. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, I have the, the bass. I haven't practiced enough. Well, here's what I realized. Like, if you don't play bass for, like, 10, 12 years or so, uh, you lose your chops. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, my, my hands tire out soon. I'm what they, I'm what they call a, 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 a sissy. Um, but, yeah, I'm still thinking about uh, writing, uh, writing the, you know, a Cooking Issues-based theme. Or I could just do, like, a Night Court-style stupid bass intro thing. Yeah, we could try that. Yeah, for those of you that remember Night Court. Yeah. Even do like some Seinfeld licks, like Joe just said. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I mean, I could do that stuff all day long. If you guys got the mic, I got the bass. Yeah, let's do it next week. Yeah. All right, I'll bring in the bass. See the. Uh, by the way, speaking of next week, on uh, starting on this Sunday is the Star Chefs International Chef Conference. Does are you are you happy that you're going to be out of the country during that? It means yeah. you're not going to have to help during the. Uh, the yeah. So no, one. All you have to do is serve a cocktail, though. No, no, I'm doing a. Uh, I'm also doing a workshop. So you wouldn't know it because it doesn't say it anywhere on the website that I'm doing a workshop. But uh, there is a slot. I'm doing a workshop on Monday from I think like, something in the afternoon, sometime like uh, two to four or something like that uh, at the International Chefs Congress. And whatever they had a slot, so they're like, "Hey, Dave, will you be our sloppy third? Some guy canceled. Will you do it?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure. What the hell? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it." So it's supposed to be tech and cocktails. I'm going to bust out probably the centrifuge. I might bring the crappy little centrifuge just for you guys to play with. Although, Stas, it's not firing up. I, I took it apart. So in, in all fairness to the piece of equipment, I took it apart, but it's not getting electrical signal anymore. Is yours, yours at home still working? Circulator? No, 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 no. The, uh, the uh, centrifuge. Pay attention. Pay attention. Catch up. Oh, uh, he took it to Del Posto. So it's still working? Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to borrow that sucker. 
um, or fix fix mine. But I'm going to bring the full-size centrifuge. I'm going to do a lot of work with uh, what I've been working on for the past couple of weeks for the new bar menu is tannin removal. Tannin removal. I'll just leave it there. I won't spoil it before the demo or before I can write it, but just put that in your head. Tannin removal. And also... Some interesting bodying effects with uh, whey protein. So head on down to the International Chefs Congress to see Dave Arnold, me, from Booker and Dax, our bar, doing a, what, what in the hell do they call this? Like a mixing workshop or something? You're 41 and you still have to do your own plugs. I know, right? Pathetic. Well, you're not doing it for me. You're sitting around. So every time I have a birthday... Right, which is too many, too many, too many times that Nastasha and I have shared birthdays together. I'm like, we still work together? What the hell? Like, it's like we just increment the year and we're like, I'm 41 freaking years old and I'm still carrying my own equipment to demos. You know, when you're like 20 and uh, forget 20, when you're like 19 and you're in a band and you're like, someday our band's going to be awesome and someone's going to move my big bass rig for me from place to place. I'm going to have like, you know, roadies. No, never happens. Never happens. The day that someone actually picks up a piece of equipment for me, I will drop dead from shock. So I hope it never happens. Anyway. Japanese, uh, the Japanese. What? The Japanese. Oh, that's true, man. That was crazy. And then we almost died from shock. Yeah. Right? We showed up. All the equipment was moved around. Yeah. Like, the equipment we asked for was there. And we, we almost passed out. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Crazy. Don't do that to me. Don't, don't, don't all of a sudden change things like that. It's no good. Okay. Uh, last week we had a question in on... Oh, I didn't say the uh, number. 718... 718- 497-2128. That's 718-497-2128 to call in live to the studio. 718 being a Brooklyn number, this being the land of hipsters. Okay, uh, last week I had a uh, Twitter question come in, and I didn't get a chance to uh, answer it. I apologize. From Landon Young, ordered a Berkshire hog head and belly. Bacon, cold or hot smoke, and head, favorite use. Okay, look. The bacon, uh, look, I, I don't, I've only made it like once or twice many, 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 many years ago, and I don't do a lot of smoking. In fact, there's another smoking question here. Um... Uh, but I will say, what I, from what I do know, uh, I, you know, the recipes uh, ask for a warm smoke, not a cold smoke. In other words, like bacon is supposed to be somewhat cooked up in anywhere between 130, which is on the low side, but really more like 145, uh, 150 is typical, like 140 I would do probably for it after it's been cured in a mixture of salt uh, and nitrates and spices and possibly sugar and maple syrup and what else. Um, you know, you could do dry or wet. It doesn't matter. But they're almost invariably cooked during the uh, smoking process. That said – that said, and it all depends. If you're going to fry it, I mean, who the heck cares how much, you know, not, not who the heck cares. But, like, it's not super uh, critical on what temperature you're going to cook it up to so long as you bring it up to the final cooking temperature. Now, if you salt the bejesus out of it and dry it, then you don't need to cook it at all, right? Um, so it, a lot is dependent upon what kind of cure you're going to use uh, and how you're going to use the finished product. That said, the, my favorite, not just not bacon, but pork belly I've ever had was Wiley, my brother-in-law Wiley Dufresne's original WD-50 opening menu, uh, long-cooked pork belly. And he cured it. Uh, he cured it in a mix with nitrites, actually, uh, and salt for a long period of time. And he cooked it at an extremely low temperature in a circulator. He didn't smoke it, right? So he just took it out uh, of the cure, pressed it really flat so it was nice and dense, and then uh, crisped up the skin side and sliced it thin, served it. Or not even thin, it was in chunks. But the most delicious pork belly I've ever had. But if you were going to do a, uh, a something like that instead of a bacon, then what I would do is I would do the cooking procedure as Wiley did. Then I would uh, dry it off at a very low temperature so you're not cooking it. Uh, and then cold smoke it. 
That stuff was delicious. Oh my god, was that stuff delicious? Okay, uh, and then as for the head, favorite use. Uh, now, okay, look. So if you want to go Italian on this, you should definitely cut the. Jo- I'm assuming the head comes with the jowl, right? And Nastasha, I know that you hate almost everything in the world that's delicious, but you like guanciale, right? Mm-hmm. Re- really? You're not just saying that so I don't yell at you. <laughs> I don't like it as much as pinche. I would. I don't put it in uh, carbonara. Yeah. Okay. Uh, listen, I'm not gonna. I can't. I can't have this discussion with you, Nastasha. But guanciale, which is the which is the cured uh, jowl of the pig, is in my mind one of the more delicious things in the world. It's my. It, it perhaps ranks in the top one of my pizza toppings. You know, aside from you know whatever cheese and sauce, blah blah. blah. But like in terms of meat based topping for a pizza, it's my absolute favorite. Have you not had the guanciale and egg pizza here? I have not had that. I have. Guess what's gonna happen today. Guanciale and egg pizza at Roberta's. Come to Roberta's and have our delicious pizzas. Right? Right. Uh, Anyway, uh, so guanciale is delicious. So if there is, uh, if the jowl is left on the uh, pig head, I would definitely take that off and cure that separately. I, I, you know, I like a salt, like a lot of people who are doing these artisanal guanciales, like cure the hell out of them and they really salt the ever-loving crap out of them uh, and they become a lot drier. I actually prefer a more modern, wetter what? Nastasha's like uh, shocked because she's reading something about uh, uh, drug-resistant gonorrhea on, in a magazine. But, okay, so once you cut the jowl off, then, uh, and I've never made it, but one of my favorite things to eat made from pork head is, uh, is uh, testa, you know, uh, head cheese, uh, the Italian-style head cheese. There's a decent recipe for it on page 187 of the new Salumi book by uh, Polson and Ruhlman. You like testa, Stas? She's not paying attention. I'm reading your tweets. She, uh, no. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, okay, fine, fine. Good, good. Nice to know. She actually is trying to find out if any of you guys are tweeting in questions. So I'm going to give her a pass on this one for not paying attention. It's good. It's good. Anyway, uh, but if you – the one thing I have done a lot with pork heads and I like, and I know it's not traditional at all, is making a scrapple with them. Scrapple – Scrapple, for those of you that don't eat Scrapple, smack yourself in the face. Unless you're a vegetarian, if you don't eat cra- uh, Scrapple, I almost called it Crapple, which is a lot of people, damn, smack yourself because Scrapple is incredibly delicious. Now, what is Scrapple? Scrapple is basically Polenta Plus. If you just sold Scrapple as Polenta Plus, then everyone would order this, right? So when you're butchering a hog or whatever, whatever you got, right, hog, uh, traditionally the Scrapple will be made from kind of the, the, the uh, metals, you know, metals up of the butcher's soup of the whatever's being boiled uh, and done, along with uh, all the entrails called the pluck, and it would have a lot of liver. And so the liver thing is what kind of, I think, what gave it a bad uh, rap among certain people. But modern scrapples don't have to be made with liver, don't have to have that livery taste. You just cook the heck out of the head, right? Get a nice, strong gelatinous, the key is it has to be a gelatinous stock. Pull the head out, pick the meat, chop it up, throw in the cornmeal, cook it like a polenta, the last second, throw the meat back into it, form it into blocks, let that sucker set, cut that sucker, fry it, and pour maple syrup over it. Could anything possibly be more delicious than this? I don't know. I don't know. I, like, Scrapple hits like a chord in my taste memory uh, because my grandma, actually, my non-Pennsylvania Dutch grandma used to make it for me, but you know, I have a lot of like Pennsylvania in my family going way back, although I never lived there. Uh, so Scrapple is uh, fantastic, and there's many regional variants of Scrapple. If you want to read an incredibly informative but deathly boring book, the authoritative book on Scrapple is William Moise Weaver's book titled Scrapple. Uh, another – what's it? So Scrapple – do you like Scrapple? You don't, you're not even paying attention, but you don't like Scrapple. I don't think I've ever had it. Do you like polenta? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing – I don't know whether I've discussed this on, uh, on the air before, but another food that has a bad rap – like Scrapple, is freaking haggis. Haggis. Have I discussed this? Anyone remember me discussing haggis? Haggis, freaking delicious. If you were to just sell haggis as 
oatmeal plus, right? Which is basically what it is. It's like oatmeal and meat stuff stuffed into a sheep ca- uh, sheep's uh, what's that thing called stomach and cooked. That is delicious. That is delicious. Haggis, neeps, and tatties. Look, there's meat, sure. There's meat in haggis that some people are squeamish about, but you eat that crap every day if you eat any sort of processed meat. And whatever. I'm just saying. Scrapple, haggis. Come back, brothers, because you are some delicious meat products. Uh, should we take a commercial break? Sure. All right. We're coming back in a second with some more cooking issues. Ranch grass-fed beef, pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hell yeah! Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Authentic flavor of the American West. Hearst Ranch. Grass-fed beef. Right? Love that song. It never gets old. Love that song. Love it. Uh, that's the only reason we did the uh, the fundraiser here was because we knew that we would get the live performance of the Hearst Ranch Grass-fed beef song. That's all, that's all I wanted. Okay. Uh, this in... Uh, we have a lot of actually smoking and preservation questions today, Stas. Uh, this one in... I'm going to do one that I can't answer. Should I do the one I can't answer now or just do it at the end and say, oh, sorry, I can't answer it. Bye. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to suck it up and say I can't answer it. Uh, John from Osaka writes in and says... If you know the temperature of a food, uh, well, sorry, if you know the temperature a food will be stored at and that food's water content, uh, in the literature, water content is abbreviated A with a little W, by the way, meaning water activity, uh, is there a way to calculate how much salt you need to add to that food to preserve it indefinitely? I want to make a variety of salted foods that can be stored indefinitely in the refrigerator and around 5 degrees Celsius. I found a few lists of water contents of common foods, but I was unable to find information about what saltage percent, uh, what salt percentage is necessary to prevent microbial growth. Thanks John in Osaka. No. How messed up is that? No, there's not. First of all, salt does a bunch of different things. Uh, huge quantities of salt uh, actually stop uh, almost everything from growing, right? Which is why mummies work. Hmm. Uh, you know, they're completely – well, they're not just salted. They're dehydrated, right? They're actually not salt. It's natron, et cetera, et cetera. My point is, is that salt is usually used uh, in conjunction with dehydration for preservation in foods like uh, ham, for instance. Now, salt also has some other properties uh, in that it inhibits many pathogenic bacteria, but not certain, you know, reasonable amounts of salt, but not things like lactic acid bacteria. So you add salt to things like cabbage to produce sauerkraut uh, or kimchi because they will select for. Uh, lactic acid bacteria to grow. The lactic acid bacteria increase the acidity, decrease the pH, and it's actually the combination of the salt plus the acidity that prevents uh, things from spoiling. So 
And we're going to talk about this again when we talk about sriracha in a minute, but it's uh, – or sriracha, sorry. Uh, but the, the, the issue is, is it's very hard. Um, like water, water activity and salt are one combination. And so if you have a particular system, like a meat system, then you can know a certain quantity of salt plus a certain water activity that are good. Uh, but it's hard to know because the question is is you might be safe with a lower salt content if, for instance, there's acid present. So it's very difficult to answer and I looked around for any sort of general guidelines uh, that were applicable to all circumstances. I eat meats, vegetables, fruits and I couldn't find anything that I'm willing to quote. Uh, and so I don't have an answer, although this – you know, I, I'm interested if anyone uh, writes or tweets in or calls in with uh, a source for information like that. I'm, I'm happy to take it. Uh, should I take a non-preservation-related question, for instance? All right. I'll do a non-preservation-related question. Uh, question from Justin. Uh, for an upcoming party with friends, uh, we are all bringing special cocktails. I like special cocktails. You? I do. Yeah. Although, what do you actually prefer? Champagne, correct. Uh, I've decided I want to make a vodka coffee and would really appreciate your input on it. The goal is a full-strength cocktail with a strong, rich coffee flavor and full caffeine content as well. So you want to you know, pick them up. You know, that's the, uh, the espresso martini. And I don't – for some reason, his name just, just pops straight out of my head. One of the most famous bartenders in London from like, you know, for a long time. For, for, his name literally just popped out of my head. But uh, he invented the espresso martini. And the quote that he says is that a model came in and she asked for something that would pick her up and F her up. Wow. And so he invented the espresso martini. Good quote, yeah? Okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that's what you want here. Okay. So uh, my chosen technique is mid, a mid-grade vodka filtered through a charcoal filter. you got to get the right kind of uh, filter, obviously, to do the right kind of uh, flavor stripping. Uh, cold brew coffee with a very good uh, dark chocolatey coffee and in the refrigerator overnight. Filter back into the bottle. Mix in vanilla, uh, simple syrup to flavor. Is there anything I can do to take this up a notch? Well, yeah. It, uh Okay, so look. So you're doing cold brew. I'm assuming you're doing the um, kind of concentrated – oh, what's the name of it? The one where you basically just stir up the grounds, let them sit in contact with the grounds for a long time and then filter, right, as opposed to the Kyoto style uh, that produces a a coffee concentrate. So here's the thing. Cold brew – uh, cold brew is becoming extremely popular right now. I don't really do much of it because I, I prefer uh, – I, mean, I drink a, a boatload of coffee but almost exclusively in the form of espresso. I'm trying to branch out but I'm branching out first into uh, hot, hot coffees, right, drip, drip style and press style. Uh, you know. Anyway, so uh, – but uh, I do a lot of work with nitrous infusion and coffee and I, what I would do to kick it up is to try to do the coffee extraction directly into the liquor. It makes an obscenely coffee-flavored uh, thing. See if you like it better and it will allow you to have more wiggle room in terms of the other ingredients you add because it's going to put you on your behind uh, as they say with the espresso margin, in more ways than one. So um, with anything – the the flavors that are extracted uh, in, in any sort of brewing situation are dependent upon what you're trying to extract. So in coffee, there are uh, acidic flavors, there are um, there are bitter flavors, there's caffeine, there's there's a whole range of different flavors, and they're all extracted uh, differently under different regimes, i.e., different pressures, different temperatures, different times. Right. So uh, espresso uh, is brewed under extremely high pressure in very short amounts of time. 
uh, you know, you know, through a particular kind of ground, and it favors the kind of extraction you get from espresso. Colder one, colder. Uh, they say, although I haven't done a lot of experimenting, like a long-term cold cold drip coffee tends to produce a less acidic uh, coffee, extracts less of the, or maybe changes the, uh, doesn't alter the coffee to make those more acidic things. I don't really know. But if you were to just mix coffee grounds into liquor, you get a certain extraction. The longer you let that that liquor sit, the more of the bitter components are extracted, and the less of the varietal note you get of the coffee and more than just the backbiting bitter. If you pressurize that liquor with nitrous oxide in a whip in an ISI whipper, and you can look up uh, rapid infusion on the Cooking Issues website to check it out, um, but like two minutes, you get an extremely like you put the an espresso related ground in the in the in the liquor, pressurize it with nitrous oxide. The nitrous oxide forces the liquor into the coffee grounds. You vent it; it boils out violently. You get a very dark, very rich, and non bitter. Uh, coffee that you can do like that and you can have the whole thing done in under three minutes and we make a lot of drinks with that as a base and it's extremely coffee and extremely punchy. You might like it worse than cold brew. You like might like it better than cold brew. It is a form of cold brew in, in that there's no heat added to it. Um, too long an extraction with that technique ex- produces extremely bitter, bitter notes. You can also change the extraction into straight water by doing a nitrous oxide uh, infusion of uh, water into coffee at cold temperatures and test the difference between that kind of extraction and your standard cold brew technique. With any of these things, there's no better, there's no worse, there's just what you like better. I happen to like a two-minute infusion of coffee at, r- I forget what it is, I think it's roughly 32 grams uh, uh, ground coffee per liter of uh, per liter of uh, liquor uh, for two minutes with two ISI chargers in a one liter container, um, shaken for about a minute and a half, uh, allowed to sit for two minutes, vented violently and strained. That's my favorite. But uh, your favorite may vary. I find that that's non-bitter, but if you do two and a half to three minutes, you get uh, more of a bitter uh, bitter note. Uh, so I would do that. Here's another thing. If you really want to take up your coffee experience a uh, notch, if you are a fan of the creamy mouthfeel of a hot espresso, you can re-mimic some of that by uh, carbonating not with CO2, which – Manhattan special soda aside, um, it's, not, it's very hard to get a good brew that way. Uh, nitrous. If you actually, once you chill the cocktail, you carbonate it with nitrous and spray it out of a foamer. It's not the f- necessarily the foam, but the creamy aeration you get from the nitrous bubbles and the slight sweetness that comes from it uh, mimics the body that you get in a hot in a hot style espresso, but in a cold drink. And uh, I tend to do that with uh, a good number of coffee drinks that I do that don't contain milk. Uh, although I could do it in milky coffee drinks too. Why don't I? Is it because I'm stupid? I know why. It's because it costs a lot of money to do in a commercial situation to keep pumping those cartridges out. We should do one. What the hell? I mean, just for ourselves. Because do you like that coffee drink, Stas? It's good, right? We make a drink called the Shakerado. That's that that coffee liquor I just told you with. Uh, um, so two ounces of of that liquor, and this one's it's it's mellow. It's a, lo- it's a lot mellower because there's there's milk and cream in it. So it's two ounces of that. I think a half ounce of simple syrup, one to one, and uh, an ounce of cream and an ounce of uh, milk shaken, and it gets a good frothy head. And you pour that into a glass. But we could do that probably with a cartridge and just spray that sucker out and just go go loony bins with it. I'll try it. Maybe I'll try it today or tomorrow or whatever. Dave, two things. Yeah? Dick Bradzel, is that the guy? Uh, from? Espresso Martini. Oh, yeah, that is him. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Caller on the line. Oh, Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah, my name is Jeff. I'm calling from Los Angeles. Um, I had a question about uh, kukui nuts or candle nuts in Indonesian food. Right. I know, I understand that they're uh, poisonous, and I guess I wondered what, What's the temperature you're supposed to cook them to, or can you kind of pre-cook them so that way they're not poisonous? 
because I want to keep them around the house, but I'm worried about my young nephew and dogs and cats and stuff eating them and dying. Uh, wait, wait, but you you want to eat them yourselves, or you just want to find out how to? Oh, you want to keep them as solids around, but you want to neutralize them, right? Uh, okay, I researched this. Uh, I researched this a couple of months ago, and the only thing that stuck in my head was I really wanted one because you can burn them straight up. Apparently, have you ever burned one? I haven't actually burned them before, but that's why they call them candle nuts. Apparently, is because they make you can they're they're oily enough you can use them like candles. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I read, and I've always wanted to. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Like, you know, instead of a regular candle on the table, just burning that sucker. Um, That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, uh, but I, see, I seem to remember there there being some. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head what the toxic principles in it are, and therefore, since I can't remember what the toxic principles in it are, I can't think of a good way to remove them. Um, I seem to remember there being some procedures for it. Are they, they are they consumed locally, or are they just burned? They're they're consumed. They're actually part of uh, Indonesian cuisine. I guess they're a thickener for uh, a lot of curries, Indonesian curries, and things like that. And do they do more and, than uh, just cook? Do they cook them in a bunch of soaks of water? I, I guess you kind of crush them up and put them inside of the curry, and they create some type of thickening. Um, I, I I haven't kept them around the house or used them yet, just because I'm I'm concerned because I have. You know, small kids and, right. and dogs. I'm worried. Right. I was given some poisonous nuts by a friend of mine from Singapore once. And I forget the name of them. They weren't candle nuts. And those ones you had to, uh, I think you had to cook them in like three boils of water first and then use them for whatever you're going to use them. But, you know, there's a lot of nuts that aren't poisonous, acorns, for instance, that. Uh, are extraordinarily bitter, and so uh, you would extract the bitter components by boiling them a bunch of times in water, throwing that water away, and then and then crushing and grinding it. But I'd have to I'd have to look up and seeing whether or not there look there's some there's some poisonous things that are that are destroyed by fermentation, and there are some poisonous things that are destroyed by uh, just being heat labile, and there are some poisonous things that are destroyed by leaching. My guess with these guys is that it's by leaching you're hoping it's by leaching because then you can just boil it a bunch of times throw the water away and be good but i'm gonna have to research it because i don't know off the top of my head okay or i was i was also wondering i have a circulator if i can just cook it at a certain temperature for x amount of time i'll just pasteurize it and kill it off that way it, oh, well, oh, okay so like certain things like water chestnuts are have actual parasites in them and need to be cooked you know you can kill that way but it, it's all a question of whether or not the whatever the toxic principle in them is uh is heat stable. If it's not heat stable, if it's heat labile, then yes, you can just cook it away and then it's a question of knowing a time temperature and if you're, if you're lucky enough that the, that the temperature uh, to destroy the toxin is low enough to not destroy the structure of the nut, then you can have something that looks like a raw undorked with nut that um, you know, is, is, is okay. But the odds of that are fairly low, I would guess. I would guess you have to leach the stuff out. If you're never gonna, if you're never gonna eat them, you could probably leach them out with something that won't ruin them. But I have to, I have to research it. Stas, can you put that down as like something for me to? I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into candle nut uh, preparation, and I'll, I'll try to get to it next week. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, okay. So I already answered the the coffee question. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Right. I finished that? Okay, good. Because uh, I never know. I can never remember whether or not I got like sucked off topic or whether I answered it. Is that, I mean, I guess that's, that makes sense because of me, because that's how I work. Okay. You guys know next week is episode 100, right? What? what? Yeah. Oh, my God. We got to blow this out. What are we going to do, Jack? 
Wait, I lied. It's the week after next week. Oh. That's just even more uh, advanced notice for you. We got to do something. Yeah? Yeah? All right. All right. We'll figure it out. Okay. From Jonathan, what is the best way to smoke a whole chicken? I have a pretty good uh, kitchen that includes a low-temperature smoker as well as a hot smoker, and both have good temperature control. I also have a circulator and a CVAP. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, for the, for the two people that listen to this show that don't know what a circulator is, God bless you for listening to my ramblings without knowing what a circulator is. But uh, – a uh, circulator is a piece of equipment that can hold a, a temperature very accurately. Actually, uh, there's kind of the like the wars between my buddies, right? Philip Preston now has that $500 circulator. What's the uh, Nomico going for? A Weepop circulator? $100? No, it's like $350 or $400. Anyway, so it's the war of the inexpensive circulators. And while this may not be a good thing for circulator manufacturers, it is going to be a great thing for the world at large because I predict that with the circulator dropping below $500, there's going to be an explosion of circulators on the market. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, she doesn't give care. She doesn't care. You like using the circulator, right? I haven't used it in a while now. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? Because you have brain damage or you don't cook anymore? Because she goes out with Mark Ladner from freaking Del Posto and just has him do the goddamn cooking. I didn't mean to curse. Wow, that was a curse. It was a curse. Well, it depends on who you're talking to. Depends on who you're talking to. Jack, is that a curse on this radio show? Oh, we'll have to ask the concerned parent who wrote in that one time. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, no, but he was happy. He just didn't well, he just want He just said he pre-listened to it. Oh, right. Screen the shows. He didn't hate us I for it. I've cursed more than you. I, I cursed That's true. Times. That is true. Yeah. It's a family program. Okay. Uh, so, Jonathan, yes, you do have a uh, pretty well-appointed uh, kitchen there. Okay. Here's the issue with the smoked chicken. Uh, so the question is, most people – I looked up on the internets – uh, to see what the kind of standard answer for the smoked chicken uh, thing is. And it seems to me that everyone cooks the heck out of a chicken. They just overcook the hell out of it. They like it with the, with the crap cooked out of it. So most people on the internets are smoking it uh, at a temperature between 250 degrees and 300 degrees Fahrenheit inside of the smoking chamber for a long period of time. So it's the equivalent of, of, uh, of like, you know, slow cook uh, on any sort of a, a barbecue thing just with, with smoke. Um, in general, they brine the, the ever-loving whatever out of these birds because when you're going to viciously overcook the birds because they're, they're all cooked up to an internal temperature of like 170, which is like 165, 170, which is above 70 degrees Celsius, which is ouch. That's high. It's high temperature, like 63, 64, 65, even 67 Celsius. It's so high, so high. It hurts my feelings to think about it. The leg meat might actually be okay at that temperature because there's enough connective tissue to break down and be good, but the breast meat is going to be dry. It will be dry. There will be dry breast meat um so they brine uh, the heck out of it with salt the salt ameliorates uh the uh the proteins like lets the, allow the protein to hold on to more water even when it's viciously overcooked um and then then smoke it and they love the smoke flavor so much from the long smoking that they probably tolerate the fat they all say that it's juicy and i'm sure there's fat present which makes it look juicy especially in the fatter parts of the chicken but i guarantee you that that breast meat is not juicy at those temperatures it just isn't unless you've really jacked it with phosphates and salt and all sorts of stuff, which I doubt you do. Here are the important things to to take into consideration. One, if you want a smoke to develop on the surface of the chicken, you want a real smoky flavor, you're really going to have to uh, dry the skin off, let it dry off before you hit the serious smoke with it. And the same thing, by the way, goes with the bacon, as we said before. I probably didn't say it before, but obviously you want the surface to be dry, so it helps to uh, let the thing, even before you hit heavy smoke on it, to... um, to get dry, but you know this since you already have a smoker that can do low temperatures as well as high temperatures. Um, the other thing is is that um, 
you know, it, it depends on what you want out of a smoked chicken. So if you want a smoked chicken uh, that be pink, right, to have t- take on that pink color, then you're going to need to make sure that you have uh, an actual wood or a lot of gas. You're going you're gonna to need a lot of like what they call NOx, i.e. either uh, NO gas or NO2 gas, right? NO2 gas, somewhat water soluble, permeates into the um, into the chicken, reacts with whatever um, you know myoglobin is present, and forms a stable pink cured color, right, which is, the I think, the best associated uh, explanation of why a smoke ring happens in things. So for a smoke ring, for pinkness, you're going to want a low, low temperature so that you're not uh, denaturing the myoglobin very quickly, right, because the way myoglobin, even though there's not much in chicken, it's present, the, the way myoglobin denatures is the slower it denatures, the more resistant it is to changing its color and uh, turning into, you know, the gray color of totally cooked, cooked myoglobin, gray and brown. So... Uh, so, and that's why, for instance, that when you do low temperature cooking in a circulator, uh, the meat around the bone, if it's not cooked quickly, uh, gets insulated and never really gets cooked uh, to uh, what people think is a done color. I call that kind of persistent pinking. But it's a slightly different pink when you get uh, cured meats, and so you should be fine. People should like it. Although people do throw away pink smoked chickens and turkeys if they don't know any better. Anyway, uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, so uh, this is what these guys are doing. If I were you, I would cook this sucker through to – I would – you want to do a whole chicken, you said, right? Shoot, whole chicken. Nah. See, if, if you were allowed to if, – if you're going to do it whole, then I would brine it because the breast meat's still going to need protection. Uh, even if you cook it – let's say we're going to CVAP it up to an internal temperature of uh, 66 Celsius, let's say. 66 Celsius. The bones will still be uh, still be pink there. Now you got to remember, like if I don't want any pinking around the bones, I completely bone it and leave it whole, a la my totally boned out, uh, crazy aluminum, you know, Thanksgiving turkey. Are we gonna do that again this year, Stas? Yeah, we can. You wanna? You wanna do two? You can have one. What are you doing? Who knows? You don't know what you're doing for Thanksgiving. See, got a caller. Oh, okay. Let me get this finished. So, so then, so what I would do then is uh, I would I would cook it all the way through, pull it out hot, let it flash off so it dries off, and then you can do a cold smoke. But you will not get a pink ring with that because once you cook the meat, it won't pink up from the uh, smoke ring. If you want to go more traditional and you want it more evenly cooked, uh, I would spatchcock it, i.e., cut the thing open and splay it open. Although that's not really a, a whole bird, but that's the way that I do uh, larger animals like turkeys if I'm going to grill them and I don't have accurate temperature control. Of course, you do. Okay, caller. You're on the air. Hi, David. It's Derek from uh, Montreal. Hey. And uh, I have a question about oysters. Already? Uh, you, uh, a few weeks ago, you mentioned just off the cuff that you would once uh, steeped oysters in aquarium salts and water so that they would pick up flavors that you were infusing in that water. Correct. And uh, I want to know, uh, I picked up the salts, and I just want to know what the, uh, the best approach was to get uh, a successful result. All right, so okay, so so here's here's the here's the thing. So first thing you have to figure out is how uh, briny you like uh, your oysters, right? What kind of salt level you want in your oysters? I like fairly salty uh, oysters, like so. For instance, like Duxbury's out of Massachusetts and things like that. I really enjoy that. Uh, you might like a slightly less saline. One and so you're gonna have to figure out how much salt you're gonna want to add per uh, gallon of liquid. It's usually it's been a while since I've done it, but I believe it's 0.29 or 0.27 pounds of salt per gallon of uh, liquid. And I'm sorry I remember it for all you metric heads. I'm sorry I remember it in imperial units, but that's you know what it is. Um, so. 
uh, and that relates to the that relates to the average salinity of ocean water, which is what aquarium salt is kind of calibrated to. Okay, so you, you're going to want to end up at something like that. Now the question is, what flavors do you want to do, and how fine a uh, so what you don't want to do is include anything in the liquid that's going to kill the oysters. I either clog its gills. So large particles, I forget what the exact number is, but it's somewhere on the order of uh, particles larger than, I think, like 10, 12, 14 microns. Particles larger than that tend to clog up the gills of oysters and kill them. Okay? So you you don't want uh, large particles like that. So you want everything filtered. I use a rotor stator homogenizer that can blend things down to well below that. A VitaPrep, just for your, you know, just for mental information, can only really get down to about a 20 micron size. So not enough to prevent. Um, prevent gill clogging in this. So you want to make sure that everything is filtered. So juices are good, uh, things like that. Uh, you also can't be uh, acidic, right? So pH water, I mean, you got to get the pH balance of the water has to be uh, accurate. So you can't use a lot of uh, acids or that will also wipe them out. Uh, I have had people say that they've had luck with things that are otherwise irritants like smoke. And we have done bacon in clams, but I haven't done it in oysters because when I was doing a lot of my initial experiments, I want to stay away from things that were known irritants. I know, for instance, that cardamom uh, works. So I'll tell you the, the recipe that we used to use was we would juice a boatload of carrots. Uh, I would then take a cardamom. Uh, and we hit it with the uh, blender. We make this carrot cardamom liquid, uh, strain it, uh, hit it with a rotor stator to make sure all the particles are small. Then we would add uh, sea salt, uh, basically to taste, but roughly sea seawater quantity. Now the trick is to get oysters to feed; they can't be too cold. So in the, at fridge temperature, it's not uh, it's it's too cold. The oysters won't feed. Uh, so you want to leave oh, it. Okay. Yeah, you want to leave them out. Uh, for a little bit to let the let the oysters start feeding. You want to be completely undisturbed. If they hear rapping or tapping, then uh, they won't open up and feed. And when we got good at it, we were getting something like 70, uh, 75% of the oysters would uh, would open up and eat. Now, here's the other thing. They won't die. Uh, you want to make sure it's well oxygenated, right? So blending right beforehand is good because it increases the oxygen level in the uh, in the liquid. Okay, so you don't you don't want it to be you want it to be cold, not too warm because that's going to drive off oxygen, but not too cold so they feed. The other trick is you don't want to let them uh, go too long because an oyster physiologist once told me that uh, there are things that can grow inside of an oyster that are not toxic to it, so won't kill it, but will can be toxic to you. So I try to keep my infuse my oyster eating period in um, within the safety zone of food. So I keep my I usually try to keep my feeding period down to about two and a half hours, uh, somewhere in that range, two and a half three hours. Keep them in that in that danger zone. They're alive still, so I don't consider it a real danger zone. Then I ice them down immediately and then shuck them to order. Okay, okay, that that sounds great because I tried leaving them um, in. Uh in the fridge overnight in, in pure carrot juice just, just to see. And, uh, and they didn't really feed. Um, I was kind of disappointed because they didn't. There wasn't, like, visible carrot juice, you know, replacing their, their natural juices inside. It was, you know, I could taste them. They were a bit saltier. But uh, that was in a cold, cold, cold fridge. So yeah, I yeah, too cold. never opened up. Right, too cold. In fact, that's um, why they do so well in fridges. They clam up, they don't open, and they're, and they're, and they're, they're good. So you're talking like, say, I take my, I have some beet juice uh, sitting waiting for me at work. I'm probably going to do another test this afternoon. 
So I'm going to have that beet juice at almost room temperature, basically. I wouldn't go too high. Yeah, I mean, like 50s, 60s are good. You don't want to go too high or, you know, uh, or you could be growing things like Vibrio and all, all these other things. But yeah, like 50, 55, 60. Like it, in Celsius, uh, what, what is that? Uh, oh, geez. Like, say, like, like a fridge. We keep our, our fridges at about four so say you're talking like 12 degrees? Yeah, like in that range. I wouldn't worry about it if it gets up, but like, yeah, somewhere between 12 and 18, somewhere in there. Okay, okay, that's cool. And then and you're talking about two hours at that temperature. Yeah, yeah, two hours. Once they're at that temperature, like two hours, two, two and a half, and then ice them right down. Yeah, perfect. Okay, I'm going to try that this afternoon. All right, let us, let us know I, how it works. Can I get you with one more? Yeah, sure. Um... Uh, completely unrelated, I make uh, a pine nut butter, or, well, I've actually lots of different nut butters. At the moment, it's a pecan is what I'm doing. And uh, it always breaks in the uh, in the robo, and then I bring it back together, emulsify it by hand after. you have any uh, tips, pointers for, for smoothness? What do you mean it, what do you mean it breaks? What, what's the, what, are the, what are the ingredients? Are you adding extra oil to it? Uh, I'm adding uh, a little bit of uh, caramel for sweetness. And uh, I usually have to add a few drops of oil just to get it to, to spin around in the uh, in the RoboCoop um, is, is my uh, weapon of choice. Do you have and a then, champion uh, juicer? And then the natural oils come out of the nuts besides any oil that I add, but I find I can re-emulsify that with a whisk and some water by hand after. Yeah. Do you have a champion juicer? Uh, I have a juicer. I'm not sure what mark it is. Uh, I mean, is it the kind that has the masticating, like a tube, and the stuff comes out? Because that's great for nut butters. That's what we use to do our pre-grind on nut butters. And then if we want them finer, we put them in a RoboCoop or VitaPrep. And then after that, we put them into a wet grinder if we want them really, really, really fine. But ours didn't used to break, did they, Stas? No. No? I mean, uh, yeah. we have a nice juicer, but I don't know if I want to break it if uh, that's what it would what roasted nuts are going to do to it? <laughs> oh no 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 no! Not break the. Although I did break one once, but I was doing many 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 nuts. Uh, of course, we were overheating the Robocoos a lot. We were doing a lot of work. We were making for like big events. We would make like big batches of nut butters and, and nut oils actually. But uh, we did have to add for some nuts, depending if they had low oil content. But I don't. Uh, I don't know why they're breaking on you. I mean, you could add some. Yeah, you could add an emulsifier. Uh, uh, a water, you know, a, a, an oil-loving emulsifier, for instance, less than or something like that, would probably bind it together. But I don't know what the emulsifier of choice is in things like peanut butter. I have to look it up. We don't. We never added any liquid at all to it, except for small amounts of liquid in the form of simple syrup. Right, Stas? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's kind of what I'm doing, and I, I even boil my simple syrup like till it's almost caramel stage, because I figured less humidity is probably a good thing, right? Uh, yeah, you know, and you know, when you process hard, you should, you could probably add like a super finer powder. It'll eventually probably break down. I mean, that's quite what the wet grinder we used was for. You could probably get away with it with no added. And then you notice it gets really hot when the robo runs a long time. You f- flash off a good amount of the water. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you run it long mm-hmm. enough for it to get hot. Uh, but we never had it break. I'm trying to think. I, I, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to put that on the list of things to try and try and look into. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I look forward to uh, trying those oysters this afternoon. I'll, uh, all right. Let's know. know let's know how it works. Tweet. Tweet your results on in. Uh, all right. <laughs> Will do. All right. Cool. Uh, got a question from Daniel in Illinois. Hi, Nastasha and Dave. I want to make Leela's Thai style sriracha sauce from SheSimmers.com, which is like you know one of the good you know Thai 
Thai Thai slash American Thai American blogs. Anyway, uh, and give it uh, as gifts this Christmas. I'm wondering if it is possible to can small amounts of this stuff so that it will last longer before opening. Is there a way to figure out if and how this can be safely done? I'm assuming uh, I would have to get some pH trips and probably increase the amount of vinegar and or sugar in the recipe. I do have a pressure cooker if that helps. Uh, And a related question, what are some of your favorite food items to make and give away? Last year we did caramels, candied orange peel, and Chex Mix. This year I'm planning on roasting coffee and, and trying to do the hot sauce. Any other ideas? Roasting coffee is tough. Uh, this is from Daniel in Illinois. Uh, roasting coffee is tough because uh, it doesn't last very long. So if you're going to roast it and bring it to someone's house that day, that that's good. But obviously, even like vacuum, it's not quite the same. I mean, you could vacuum pack, I guess, whatever. But anyway, roasted coffee is difficult, although fun to do. I used to, I, you know, it's been a number of years since I roasted, but I used to only uh, roast my own, and I love it. And of course, you can get really interesting coffees from places like Sweet Maria's on the net and all that stuff. Uh, I was, uh, I used to be a, a, a an air popcorn uh, roaster guy, uh, and then I had the the ones that were made for the purpose and I burnt out three of them and then I went to Whirly Pop. Anyway, enough of coffee roasting. I like to give away cookies. What about you, Stas? Christmas? Yeah. Yeah. I like cookies. Nastasha and I tried to give away like, you know, whatever that was, a thousand, two thousand cookies or whatever to uh, the troops a number of years ago and man, you would not believe how hard it is to give cookies to to troops. Uh, But, uh, you know, leave that for a different life to talk about that. Uh, so uh, on the stuff, so I looked uh, at her uh, recipe, and by the way, she's also a linguistics expert, so it's uh, not just in Thai apparently, but also in classics. So it's, uh, it's not uh, sriracha, as most of us say, but sir- sriracha, sriracha sauce. And it's one of our favorites, although I also found out that the one most of us use, which I call, the actual name of it is uh, Hui Fang's uh, sriracha sauce, sriracha sauce, uh, is the one we call the, 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 nicely the rooster, or actually the kitchen we call it the hot cock sauce, is the one with the, it's in the bottle with the rooster on the front, and bright red because the bottle's clear. Apparently that's not the Thai style. The Actually, the one that she calls out are the two brands, Shark, I don't know, and Panich, which is the one, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that's the one that I got from my local Thai guy who said this is what we actually use, the Panich, and that stuff is delicious but not the same as the rooster brand one. So uh, her recipe is more like the panich, which is delicious if you can get it. So her recipe is 24 ounces of uh, red uh, jalapenos or serranos. Uh, she says do not substitute any other type of pepper. 8 ounces of peeled garlic cloves, 4 ounces of white vinegar, 12 ounces water, 16 ounces sugar, and uh, 6 tablespoons of salt. Uh, so and you know follow her recipe, but that's the basic thing. I don't think that that recipe on its own is probably 100% safe. What you need to do is get a pH meter and check to make sure it has a pH of 4.5 or below. Do not use your pressure cooker. Um, well, we'll get into that in one second. So uh, you need a pH of 4.5 or below to ensure that it's what's called a uh, an acidified food, i.e. not a low acid food. Uh, so just check that. I don't count. I mean, there is quite a bit of salt. That's quite a bit of salt uh, in there, but I don't know that it's enough to... Uh, to preserve it, I would go to the National Center for uh, Home Food Preservation and, and look at their look at their things. Here's what they had to say. So I would I would take it below 4.5 and then do what's called the boiling water, where you actually cover the uh, products in boiling water inside the cans and and. and boil them out. Unfortunately, Jack's going to cut me off. I don't have enough time to fully explain uh, um, all, all, all of the stuff, but I think you're right. Just get the, get the thing below. And uh, Interestingly, the reason that they don't recommend small pressure cookers for canning is because all of the recipes that are written by the USDA and all the ones that have been tested by the agricultural extensions require the long heat up time and the long cooling time of the larger canning things to get their recipes right. And They don't want to give you a recommendation. They could, but they don't want to give you a recommendation for how long to cook something in a smaller uh, in a smaller 
thing. Some people say, although I don't think this is the reason, that also the smaller ones, they don't trust uh, the accuracy of the pressure readings because the gauge doesn't go up high enough. But I think that's kind of a load of horse manure. The other thing is you need to uh, make sure that if you are going to use a pressure cooker against their recommendations, that you open the lid and let it vent steam for a good 10 minutes before you allow the pressure to build up. That's going to vent out all the air and get the uh, pressure uh, pressure uh, working up. Um, if you were to get it, uh, there's a. It's not the same sauce, but I read a, a really interesting thing about uh, someone who uh, was using uh, fermented uh, pepper sauces. And, you know, there's a lot to talk about with uh, fermentation and canning, and uh, maybe we should talk about that next time, huh? Sure. Because because we're running out of time. I'm get get. Um, all right, so I'll get back to it. Uh, I have a question question in uh, that I'm really interested in that got tweeted in from Andrew about highly saturated fats. But since I'm probably going to go on a 10 minute rant about highly saturated fats, uh, I should probably leave that till next time. Same with uh, the Harvard lecture and agar agar recipes. I'll get to you guys next week. I promise. Cooking issues. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today.